Hello, hello, and welcome to Her Music Academia, the podcast. I am your host, Lydia Bengura. I am a PhD student at the University of Michigan studying music theory, so I do a lot of music historical work, music analytical work, love talking about music. And this podcast is the place where I bring on other musicians, other music scholars to talk about what they do in music, and I love having conversations with y'all about music. Today, I'm really excited to invite Dr. Dan DiPiero on the show. We talk all about his experiences as a jazz drummer, his experiences in academia, and his upcoming book on improvisation. Without further ado, here's our conversation. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Today, I'm really excited to have a drummer, a musicologist who's starting at Ithaca this coming fall. It is Dan DiPiero. How are you? I'm really good. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you. I'm so excited that you said yes to be on. Um, I'm really interested in everything that's going on with your upcoming book. And I just have so many questions for you about things that I know nothing about. So this is going to be such a great learning experience for me. Let's, oh, and I should also mention that I got to meet you at the Theorizing African-American Music Conference, which was so fun. I'm so glad that I got to go. Great performances, great talks. Um, How was your time at the conference? That was fantastic. Yeah. And including your performance. Um, (laughs) Yeah, it was, it was really energizing. I learned a lot. I sort of submitted something that I had, you know, only half thought about at the time that I threw in an abstract and I ended up being super grateful for the opportunity to like fully think through those ideas and get feedback from like, you know, I mean, like so many incredible people were there. So yeah, I had a great time. Yeah, it was awesome. All the keynotes, knocked it out of the park. There are so many people there who I was like, oh my gosh, I've read your books and I've been familiar with your work and you're here and you're talking to me. The most intimidating room I've ever talked in front of by far. Actually, actually. It was so cool. I had a great time um, and met so many great people that I wouldn't have otherwise. So I'm glad now to be familiar with your work and several other scholars who, you know, I had no idea about their work and they gave great talks, great presentations. So lots to think about. Really great experience. But so let's talk about you. And if you want to let me and the listeners know just a bit about like your musical upbringing. So your early experiences in music, if you came from a musical family, what time, like what age you started playing music or singing or writing music, anything like that. Sure. Yeah. So um, let me think. Well, my early music experience, uh, speaking of that conference, like happened right there. Right. Um, I used to, I, so I'm from a, a East suburb of Cleveland and I used to go down to university circle and case and the music school settlement, um, to get drum lessons and do, you know, youth orchestras. And I did all that stuff in high school, um, through the, uh, Cleveland music school settlement. And that was really how I got interested in music as sort of more than a thing you do in school, you know, Um, because it was like 
extracurricular. I, I would go down with my friends on the weekend and do orchestra rehearsals. And, it, you know, I got interested in it in a little bit more of a serious way um, through, through programs like that in Cleveland. Uh, um, I studied with this uh, great local drummer, Bill Ransom, and um, just got more and more into it the more that I did it. So I auditioned for a couple of schools for undergrad. I ended up going to a small conservatory here in Columbus uh, called Capital University. And I majored in jazz studies and I played, you know, focused on the drum set. And after that, I went to CalArts for a master's because I really was sort of focused on this. Um, I thought I was going to play jazz drums professionally for the rest of my life, you know, and, and Jola Barbara is teaching out there and, they had this amazing um, creative music program that, you know, they, they, they produce a CD of original student compositions every year. And so I was listening to it online and just like, oh, this is the place to be. All this great music is happening. That sounds dope. Wow. Oh, so cool. They have an archive going back like years, like a couple decades maybe. Yeah. So I went out there for that program, like really had my sight set on that program and got a ton out of it and really it, it, it was sort of everything that I wanted it to be actually um but also by the time I was finishing it I was having sort of an identity crisis uh about like my future and you know all the practicalities of like you know I hadn't uh, uh stumbled into any auditions in LA that sort of made my career take off and I I didn't really have anything lined up at the end of my master's degree and so I was like you know what am I going to do am I going to stay here am I going to go back uh, to the midwest what's going to happen and um, right around the time that I was starting to have some uh, questions about my future I needed one more non-music credit in order to graduate and I stumbled into this like really the only class that had any seats in it was this really high level um, sort of critical theory class for uh, students in this program called aesthetics and politics. And I had no place being there. I, I was way over my head. I had no idea what anybody was talking about, but I needed the credit. And so I just sort of like tried to hang in there the best that I could. And we were reading like, you know, Foucault and Nietzsche. And I'm just like, uh, I haven't read a book since I was 12. Like what's happening? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Cut it. But um, no. I, ended up getting really sort of bit by the academic bug. Um, I really got into some of the readings that were happening in that class and I didn't have anything going on. And so I talked to the professor and he was like, why don't, well, this is like a one-year master's program. Why don't you just stay in, in California for another year and do our program and then see what you think when you're finished with this one. So I just sort of slid into it very accidentally um, did that master's degree. And that was the beginning of me thinking about, wow, I really love music, but I also love writing and thinking about it, you know, not just performing it. And it looks like if I continue to try to pursue this, I mean, aesthetics and politics, it's in the name, right? It's like critical theory, but there's also an aesthetic, artistic, investigation going on so if i continue to follow that path maybe there's a way to sort of reconcile these two sides of my interests and so that's what brought me to eventually back to columbus to ohio state where i did my phd 
in a program called comparative studies, which was perfect because it was like a build your own program. I could study whatever I wanted. And I read lots of musicology stuff and I read lots of not musicology stuff. And I tried to smash it all together. And that is in some form what you see in my book. It's like a straight, that's still the, the mentality or the mindset that informs how I approach this stuff is like, trying to bring an interdisciplinary perspective to music, trying to see what music can tell us about social life and what social life can tell us about music. Long answer. Okay, this, no, 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 and this is exactly the answer that we wanted because this is fascinating. Okay, so let's talk about, because every time I hear about one of these degrees where it's like a choose your own adventure mm. degree, I just find <laughs> that so intimidating like i just don't even know especially when students end up choosing those majors as their undergrad when i was an undergrad i was like girl tell me what to do like i don't know i'm just here like i don't know what to do so i would love to hear more about this what did you say it was a comparative comparative studies comparative studies yeah yeah so it's um, it's pretty unique. There's not another program that I know of that has that name. Uh, when I was like looking at programs to apply to, you know, I saw a couple uh, comparable degrees, sure. like um, like an this, independent this... PhD or something. Yeah, it, it, there was one program that called it interdisciplinary humanities. Mm. You know, um, uh, there's a critical theory or a cultural theory sort of emphasis in uh one of the english programs i looked at so it would you know it has a if if schools offer something like that it goes by different names and it's sort of this um uh, illegible honestly um a course of study for a lot of people but i for me it was I've always been in context like that, starting with CalArts, right? Um, which was an academic degree program housed in a in an art school. You know, everything there is under one roof. Mm. So all programs, dance, theater, music, fine art, and then this academic program. Um, so the description of comparative studies was super appealing to me for that reason. But it does it does bring up some problems, you know, because it becomes difficult to find your way at certain points, it becomes then once you do find your way, it becomes difficult to translate what you've decided to pursue into the disciplinary language that most people are, are speaking in. And this has been particularly true I've found on the job market, right? Where a, a job does not open up in a comparative studies department very often. There's maybe like two or three of them. So I find myself applying for jobs in musicology and having to explain why what I do links up with what they do, right? And it can be difficult to translate that for sure. Yeah, but but from a learning experience perspective, for me, it was ideal. It was really, really perfect. Um, I I had a great time doing it and i found the flexibility really empowering ultimately yeah that sounds really really interesting the way that you had you know this is kind of you know standard for a lot of 
people who make their careers about music making in some capacity, right? It's very, you have to forge your own path. You might do kind of the same thing as your teacher did or do the same thing as some, like try to emulate somebody's career, but it turns out completely differently because careers in music are so volatile <laughs> and varied, especially as, as decades go on. Um, what did you end up researching for your dissertation? Yes, yeah, so the the book that I have coming out in August is my dissertation project, heavily edited, um, some chapters cut and replaced with new material, but fundamentally it's the same project. So I've been thinking about improvisation from the beginning, really, and and trying to figure out like um, how I wanted to tackle that topic especially given like once I started studying for my my comps um, I sort of discovered that there's this subfield of critical improvisation studies mm -hmm. where there's all sorts of people writing all sorts of things about this topic and I had to you know get literate with that really quickly um, but yeah trying to find my angle into that conversation was what I was doing doing the whole time that was my fundamental focus and my main project great great um so i also want to take a moment to just ask since uh the COVID 19 pandemic has really shifted what we know about careers in music and what music making means i just want to ask a bit about like your experience during the pandemic were you teaching during that time or like, what have you been doing kind of in the past two plus years? Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's an interesting question uh, because I had a weird, I had a weird time as, as everybody did. Mm -hmm. um, a, a, a lot of my uh, musician friends here in Columbus talked to me about that period as being super dark, like sure. work, works really dried up, you know, people were not doing anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously for my full-time musician friends, that's a huge deal, right? right? Um, for me, I wasn't here at the time. So what, what, what ended up happening was I, I got a visiting position at Miami university out right out of my PhD. So I was teaching American studies at Miami and oh, wow. when, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, we can talk about that if it you know, if it's yeah, relevant, like but American studies. Okay. <laughs> this is so, like, so all over the place. I love it. It is all over the place, but I promise it's, uh, it's coherent <laughs> in the end, uh, at least for me anyway. So I had a, a one-year position and it was like, you know, possibility of renewal, that kind of thing. Um, but when COVID hit, basically what Miami did was they took that as a pretext to sort of realign some things in their budget and about, and, and they rely quite heavily on visiting professors to teach their courses. So there's a lot of us and about 230 of us uh, got fired, not renewed all at the same time. Um, and in, in my case, so I had already been renewed, right? The Dean signed the paper and I was going to get renewed for the next year. And then all of that got rearranged. Um, so it was pretty, you know, 
pretty shady. Wow. I can also um, cut this if you want. I don't have to leave. The, it's up to you. No, anyway, it's fine. Continue. Everybody everybody should know. Everybody should know. And thankfully, some good things have happened in the wake of that. Like the provost who was responsible for that decision making got fired recently. And Miami faculty are now unionizing, which is wonderful Great. because they got saddled with all the extra courses that we were teaching. Yeah, you know, wow. when we got fired, their their workload went up like crazy. So they unionized, which is really great. Um, but that's all to say, I spent the pandemic primarily unemployed in the first parts of it and sort of couch surfing. Um, so I wasn't here. And I wasn't doing much of anything except sort of furiously trying to finish my book because what else was I going to do? And I had a lot of free time and it ended up being really um, good for the writing of the book, but that's all I was doing um, until some work opened back up uh, where I graduated at OSU. And in January, 2021, I think I started back at OSU teaching uh, in the department where I graduated from, um, which was fantastic. But yeah, I missed I missed a lot of the pandemic in that sense. You know, I had a couple of friends who did some online things, like mm. like produced really great sounding uh, live sessions and raised money, you know, uh, to try to distribute for, for gigging folks who were out of work. But, um, yeah, it hit everybody really, really hard. And in that sense, I'm, I feel very fortunate that I like landed. Okay. You know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm excited to, to hear about your, upcoming position at Ithaca. Can you uh, just tell the listeners a bit about, because you told me before we started recording, about what you'll be doing there? Yeah, so I'll, I'll be teaching in a music department, which is really exciting. I've been trying to get get into one of those. <laughs> I go back, go back home, you know, mm. uh, to where I started. Um, so I'll be teaching music history courses. Um, there's, a, there's a three course sequence of like, western music history basically but it's they're doing some really interesting things with pedagogy to try to um you know push back against the canon approach and to push back against the like here's a survey course and you get a textbook and you just go chronologically you know um so it's really interestingly structured around these case studies or like problems in musicology and they try to get students like doing musicology right from the jump so like formulating a research question presenting a little you know powerpoint about what they discovered when they went looking into their topic um so i'm really it, you know it's western music history quote unquote but i'm really excited about the way that it's being approached there mm -hmm. um and then i have other courses too that are more in my traditional wheelhouse in terms of what i've been doing for the past several years um such as uh, music and society, music in the media, uh, African-American popular music, um, which is to say, in some ways, US popular music in general, right? Um, so yeah, I get to teach a lot of courses that do what I am always trying to do, which is to bring music into conversation with politics, questions of identity, questions of social belonging and, you know, current events that hopefully are going to help students think about music differently, but also 
use their interest in music to think about the world differently, right? Um, to if they're music majors, how can music become the hook that sort of gets you excited about this idea, but then brings you into thinking about something that you weren't necessarily planning on thinking about? So now let's let's talk about your book, which you said it's coming out next month in August. August 31st. Ooh, listeners, write that date down. <laughs> this is so exciting. It's called Contingent Encounters, Improvisation in Music and in Everyday Life. So you said that you kind of started that this ball has been rolling since your dissertation project. Could you for me and the listeners, because as soon as I, oh, also listeners, we're going to um, kind of be getting into a lecture um, that Dan gave, when was this, last year? Or no, this year? In November. Okay. Like in November last fall. year. Okay, great. Yeah. Listeners, I'll put that in the show notes for you so you can check out his talk. It's really brilliant. I really appreciated that you kind of start off in the talk discussing you know the literature at large of improvisation studies so could you just give a, a, a short overview of the existing literature already and like kind of give us a broad definition of what improvisation studies is yeah um like that's a simple question it's not but <laughs> <laughs> yeah well there are ways to i mean the field is relatively young so at least that makes it a little bit easier to talk about um, because there haven't been so many sort of like waves or turns in the scholarship. Um, basically, the field got started arguably through the efforts of this research project coming out of Canada called um, Improvisation Community and Social Practice, I think, which is now the International Institute for Critical Studies in Improvisation. And this is a sort of um, gr like group of universities in Canada that are collaborating on this institute. It's got funding from a bunch, it, a bunch of sources, including you know, grants from the government. Uh, they just recently started a PhD in critical improvisation studies at the University of Guelph, which is where I think the home base of this institute is. So they're like nonprofit grant funded research into improvisation. And that sort of is what got the ball rolling. And there was a jazz festival too. Um, the, the Guelph jazz festival is still, uh, still going strong. And through all of that kind of activity, this subfield of humanities, slash musicological research sort of sprang up in the past 15 years. And the conceit that sort of informs it, I think, is, is that improvisation is this inherently multidisciplinary phenomenon that um, can tie together conversations that are happening across different disciplines, and that can raise a lot of um, new perspectives and questions in those disciplines. So um, a chief example that uh, often gets talked about is this idea that like, you know, Western epistemology is basically structured on this idea of knowledge as an object, 
right? And improvisation challenges us to think about knowledge as a process because it's always emerging. You know, it never sort of coheres into its final project. Even when you have a recording of something, it's way different from the next time you have a recording of that same thing. And it was, it was, the argument was we can sort of think in new ways about not just music, but all sorts of artistic and humanistic disciplines. Since then, it's grown, and there's a lot of different perspectives in the field, and people are starting to increasingly argue, um, from my perspective, about the social utility of improvisation. And they're also starting to become more self-reflexive about the field and to point out like tendencies that might be a little bit problematic in the scholarship. Uh, For instance, um, it's most often been the case that people in critical improvisation studies locate their theories in sort of white Western avant-garde spaces, right? They're studying free improvisation primarily coming out of uh, the the white Western context. Mm -hmm. And so there was this big push to check to expand what we're doing, to expand beyond the U.S. and and the uh, the American context, and to look uh, more capaciously at where improvisation is happening in other parts of the world. And so now it's become you know a subfield where there are lots of genuine disagreements and different positions and things. And like I said before, um, when I found out about all of that, then the challenge for me was to sort of figure out where does what I'm trying to say about improvisation fit in this conversation and who am I more in agreement with and who, you know, who do I want to try to distance myself from in terms of the scholarly perspective, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. There were so many things that really stuck out to me as I was watching your lecture, especially how you kind of pointed out, I feel like, the language of improvisation and of this field to me as someone who's kind of viewing it as an outsider, it can often seem really murky and obscure kind of how, you know, I had a, a, an episode uh, that I just recorded with Dr. Kara Stroud and Dr. Megan Lavengood uh, about timbre in pop music. And so Mm. timbre is another field Mm -hmm. where it's like, what's going, what even is timbre? Right. (laughs) Nobody knows. Talk about, it's, yeah, it's it's really hard to nail down a, nef- a definition like um, Kara kind of mentioned when she's talking to someone who isn't a musician about timbre. She'll often say like, oh, it's like the color of the sound, right? Which, okay, well, what is that, right? It's so like obscure and strange and mythical the way that we talk about it, which is kind of how I feel like improvisation and that whole field feels to me as an outsider. So I appreciate kind of you laying the framework for us, Um, especially you also kind of pointed out that we're in a really interesting kind of cultural moment of improv being some sort of strange like societal value <laughs> in in this weird neoliberal sense can you talk about that a bit yeah so there's actually two things that i want to pick up on about what you just said um the first thing is like timbre i think you're exactly right to make that connection because timbre is so fascinating and i can't wait to hear the conversation with that you had with them that's going to be super great and i'm thinking about it for my own weird reasons right now about like 90s rock 
which we can talk about later maybe. <laughs> but um, you're totally right to make that connection because one of the main things that characterized improvisation scholarship pretty universally, I feel comfortable saying, is that nobody felt comfortable defining what improvisation was. Mm. Like mm. across the board, nobody. And um, the the line there about that, that reluctance was that if we define improvisation, we're, we're doing a, a sort of inherently counter-improvisatory thing to the concept itself. Like we're, bi- we're bounding it within a very restricted space of a definition. And improvisation is a concept that itself is always challenging the imposition of such boxes and definitions, right? So we can't do that to this word, um, which is an argument that I have a certain amount of sympathy for, but it does create problems in my opinion. So the one of the things that I actually set out to do in the book is to, um, you know, not definitively or for all time or with any sort of objectivity, but as a polemic, like actually try to define what this word means. Um, Because I don't think, because I think when you deploy a concept, right, when you say, let's transform how we think about X discipline using improvisation, right? You're presupposing what improvisation is in order to mobilize it. Mm. But if you don't think that you're presupposing what improvisation is, then you're opening yourself up to a lot of dangerous assumptions coming in through the back door. In other words, I think you have to define it in order to just be self-reflexive and attentive to how you intend to use the concept and what what it is for you in this project, in the context that you're using it, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's super important to try to define that, that concept. And I have lots more to say about that later. But yeah, like Tambor, people have struggled to define it. Um, mm-hmm. The other thing that you mentioned is the neoliberal... Uh, Kind of this like colloquial use of the word. This is, yeah, this is, when I started discovering how many business consulting firms and hospitals and credit card companies. I don't want to hear improv in a hospital. (laughs) Absolutely not. Like seriously, medical improv is a thing. (laughs) Like it is a thing that is out there. I couldn't believe it. I don't want you to improv nothing, doc. I want everything to be planned, (laughs) premeditated, please. Seriously. So the more that I, when I started discovering how frequently improvisation was being invoked as a novel problem-solving solution in these kinds of business spaces to say nothing of uber and lyft right using improvisation as this justification for worker exploitation um they say flexibility you know of course you're not an employee if you were an employee with a paycheck and benefits, then you wouldn't have the flexibility and the capacity to improvise your schedule as you see fit, right? And that's their line of defense against people who are saying like, hey, you know, you're not providing basic um, living services for your employees. Like if there's a problem on the job, they can't 
you know, they have no recourse, they have nobody to call. And, and they trot out this defense about like, well, this is designed to be this sort of improvisational kind of job. So it's not like a normal job that you're wedded to. So the more that I started seeing stuff like that, the more that it seemed to me that this was basically the exact same argument that a lot of scholars had been making in academia, that they were saying, we can use Im improvisation to transform how we do business, right? Um, so just the same way that a, that a business will hire a consulting firm and they'll come in and teach all the employees like an improv acting class for you know an all day event. And then this will be the way that they learn how to problem solve creatively on the job. Academics are doing something of the same thing when they say the way that we think about X field is outdated. Improvisation is the thing that's going to help us think about this in a new way, right? And uh, Vijay Iyer has like really important, he's my sort of go-to thinker on this topic. He, he published a, a really excellent chapter uh, called Beneath Improvisation, which I think is open access. And I can send you the link. And he has this super important critique of the way that scholars are doing that. Um, and there's all kinds of problems with it, not just that it's sort of uh, its potential to be instrumentalized on behalf of neoliberal capital, but also the way that it, it he calls it a rehabilitative gesture, right? Improvisation is traditionally this thing that gets associated with jazz, especially since the early days. That is an association that has tons of racist overtones and is, is the primary characteristic that people use in order to other both jazz music and the people who are making it, right? And, and to contrast it with the sort of greatness of the written composition in the European history of everything, right? Beethoven is a great composer. These jazz musicians are just making things up on the fly. That's not the same thing, right? So improvisation studies, when it uses improvisation as an instrument rehabilitates the concept, takes something that had been used to oppress people and gives it sustained attention, but often in doing so really transforms the way that that concept has been understood by the very practitioners that it was being used against. And then often if you look at the bibliography, they're not even citing Black scholars on this topic mm. that comes out of black communities and was used against black communities right so sure yeah there it's not just about neoliberalism but it's also about the politics of like championing this concept uncritically without necessarily attending to you know the complexities of the argument that might that should give us pause i would say Right, right. That's such a great point. And along this line of now kind of wielding improvisation and this concept kind of as a weapon back against the Black community, um, you brought up this really great point about police brutality and um, the ways in which 
it can then the, this concept of improv can then be used right to excuse actions that were made in the moment you you said in your talk actions made in real time should not can should not carry the same consequences as those that were decided in advance so that those two realms of decision making have different stakes and different weight yeah. to them yeah that um so basic first point that I'm trying to make, improvisation is often really horrifying, right? If we back up a couple of steps, one thing that we might be able to say about critical improvisation studies is that it spends a lot of time thinking about improvisation when really good and interesting things come from it. And I think there's an imperative to actually attend to the ways that improvisation can be horribly harmful can be used to justify exploitative labor practices like Uber and Lyft and DoorDash, um, you know, has negative consequences. That's a part of improvisation too, right? Because fundamentally improvisation mm -hmm. is, and I mean this quite literally, everything that we do all the time. Um, so it has positive aspects and it has negative aspects and the field needs to pay more attention in my opinion to the negative aspects that have been traditionally overlooked. And, and I think that that, that example about police brutality mm. is perhaps the case in point. Um, uh, this was um, something that I noticed when I was listening to NPR. They played a little bit of the, of the transcript from Derek Chauvin's defense uh, when he was on trial, and his lawyer tried to make the case, as you just summarized, that... Um, you know, police are basically entitled to do whatever they think is reasonable in the moment. And, and then this lawyer specifically says, and that even can include improvisation, right? Like, if they're in the heat of the moment, and they're, if they're in the middle of something, and they have to improvise, that is allowable under the purview of their job description or whatever, mm -hmm. right? And in this case, it wasn't a successful defense, but the fact that the lawyer was able to sort of reach to improvisation as a defense of what he did, you know, to me, what that says is that, yeah, this concept is capable of being mobilized towards all kinds of horrifying ends, just as much as it is uh, uh, mobilized towards something that makes us feel really creatively gratified when we're working together in artistic community. It's both. Right, right. Um, I really appreciate um, that you kind of nailed down as again, as well as we can, because again, improv is such a it, it's such a large, murky concept that like you've pointed out is really, really hard to define. Um, but at one point, you said improvisation is not a special activity at all. But the thing that happens anytime we're in a contingent, a contingent situation. So again, tying it to situations that are subject to change, which is literally every situation, as you're saying, that we're doing it all the time, that we're making decisions all the time in contingent situations. And so I think it's also really helpful that you contextualize that and situate it within the understanding that different groups of people have access to different choices, right? And so then the improvisation that everybody has 
access to and is able to act upon is different, right? So that obviously bringing in factors of race, class, gender, sexuality, um, disability, slash ability, all those things um, that, that kind of determine what any one person is able to improvise in any given situation. Um, this really brings to mind, I don't know if you're familiar or with this trend that was kind of popping up around a year ago all over like Twitter and YouTube, um, this conversation around I don't dream of labor. I missed it, I have to say. Okay. No, no worries. Yeah. So it was this really interesting trend, especially among the Gen Zers. So a lot of younger people, a lot of young women, the girls just decided we're tired. We don't want to work anymore. We're quitting our jobs and we want to be YouTubers, right? We want to be content creators. We don't want to like boo capitalism. This is not fun. What I was told is that I was going to graduate and get a good job and make, you know, have this job where I make six figures or I make $80,000 a year and that was going to make me happy. But I don't enjoy this job. I'm being exploited at my work and I don't I don't like doing it. And so this whole concept of having a dream job is like a scam, right? It's like a capitalistic lie, right? That we've been told ever since we were children being asked about what we wanted to do um, when we grew up and had jobs and so i remember seeing this trend and what i feel like was always missing from that conversation it's it's a it's an incredibly privileged conversation right to be able to say i don't dream of having a corporate job and i don't want my nine to five and i just want to travel the world and eat great food and do whatever i want and have great experiences and i should not have to work and i should not have to be exploited under capitalism now i understand why the girls are mad yes <laughs> you know ideally right you would be in in a, a working environment in which you don't uh, experience exploitation but the nature of that conversation was really missing this element of class as far as okay so there are working class people right that do dream of having corporate jobs that do dream about being able to sit down while they're at work because they are standing on their feet all day or they're running around all day or they have to work really crazy hours to try and make a living wage and so what was missing from that conversation it was giving choice feminism right it's giving like oh, well, she made the choice that she wanted to make. And so it's a feminist choice, right? Which really ignores the fact that different women have different access to choices, to different choices. And so, again, bringing in this concept of, of improvisation, the understanding that we all have access to different choices makes our ability to act on, on improv different <laughs> yeah 100 percent. that's a great example because it's yeah it's still governed by this neoliberal rationality mm -hmm. that reduces everything mm -hmm. to personal individual choice right if you right. can opt to remove yourself from an exploitative work situation that's great but it's not a structural critique of the work situation sure. right um sure. yeah and on a very simple level you know uh if your car breaks down, you have to improvise, right? And and sure. if you can't afford to get that fixed, then the the 
choices that you have available to you are, are, are going to be different, right? Than if you're empowered by capital to make a different set of choices. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, one thing that I also talk about is contingent faculty labor that, uh, in, in situations like that, you know, the, the administrators who, who are in charge of our schools have a bunch of capacities to improvise in a very agentic way. So, and, and yeah, and this is, this is Vijay Iyer's point about it as well, is that we're not properly attending to difference. We're not properly attending to context when we valorize and uncritically celebrate improvisation as a creative capacity when really what it is, is um, a, 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 for me, a, a modality of being alive. And I'm not saying that there aren't differences between playing jazz music and walking down the street. But in my opinion, those differences are the result of the genre that you're participating in and not the dynamics through which improvisation operates. In both cases, what you're doing is navigating a specific system according to your capabilities, right? And that is exactly the same whether you're walking or whether you're playing music. The difference is you're in a different genre space with a different level of experience, so forth and so on. Uh, so what I want to do is, is attend to those differences. Absolutely, the differences are everything, right? As we've been talking about, difference is everything. But improvisation is not responsible for that difference. It's just you, the capacity that you have to navigate those different situations, however you happen to be equipped in the moment. Right. Really, really fascinating. Um, another thing I want to ask you about is kind of the the connection between this triad of subject, object, and environment. Could you kind of talk about that for us? Yeah. Um, so when I talk about um, contingency or, or a contingent encounter, uh, that there's improvisation wherever there's contingency, I think... Um, in order to properly contextualize the types of differences that we've been talking about, you have to broaden the framework out from the individual improviser. And so subjects, objects, environments is just my way of trying to account for the forces that are in play in a given instance of improvisation. A lot of um, improvisation scholarship, particularly in the sort of Deleuzian lineage, um, has made note of the difference that objects make, for instance. Like, it's not improvisation it isn't just this creative thing that people generate within themselves and then they express themselves freely. Actually, your you know, what you're capable of doing or producing is affected by the instrument that you're engaging with, the the other people on the bandstand who are, you know, directing their improvisations toward you. So there's been this, this um, I think, correct emphasis on interactivity as something that 
you know, the improvisation is dependent on a whole network of objects and subjects in this moment. It's not just you and your creative vision. Right. What, and then even some people have brought the environment into it as well, because the environment is, if you think about the physical environment, that's the easiest example. Um, I talk a little bit about like Pauline Oliveros and the deep listening band. They famously descend into this large cistern uh, to play music. And the cistern has like a 40 second sound delay. Like you, you play a sound and it just echoes like crazy. So when they're down there, they're improvising not only with each other, but with the environment mm. because their sounds are still in the air when they want to go ahead and make new sounds. So like they can play a chord with themselves, even on a trombone or, a, you know, a single note instrument because the sound is echoing so much. So the physical environment is the easiest, I think, case uh, uh, for understanding how other things constitute improvisation just as much as you do. Other things are participants in that situation. If not equally, then still fundamentally, you can't, you can't do it without the participation of these other things. Sure. But what I also wanted to try to add to the conversation by thinking about environments more broadly is that it's not just about physical environments. If you think, for example, about uh, Christina Sharp's work, which I know you're familiar with, about the wake and the weather, those are environments that govern life in the United States, right? Um, and, and globally, right? There is a, there is a mm -hmm. non-physical, but nevertheless, absolutely real environment of white supremacy. That matters when you're improvising that affects what what you're capable of doing depending on where you're situated so i'm trying to uh, a lot of um focus on the interactivity of improvisation stays relatively limited to the bandstand and i'm trying to broaden that out and to think about how are your emotions factoring into this encounter how are the larger power structures in your national or global context affecting you know, not just the music, but your experience in that moment. Um, you know, we, we, we talk a lot about how empowering free improvisation can be for expressing your creativity, but oftentimes uh, women who are improvising with men don't necessarily feel the same way that, that the guys do about that. <laughs> you know, it, guys walk off the bandstand, they're like, yeah, that was fucking awesome, you know? And, and the women who they've been playing over the whole time don't have that same experience. So like, we need to think about gender. We need to think about race. Um, those things too are a part of the environment that matters when we think about improvisation. Yeah. Okay. I'm so glad you said this. So, you know, the next part of your talk, you get into talking about Eric Dolphy, who's a, um, a saxophonist and, you know, I really, really appreciated your observations about the nature of his career and the way that he was disregarded when he was alive um, and couldn't, you know, make a living from performing jazz music. Uh, but it's kind of in retrospect that we're able to uh, appreciate his music and his uh, use of improvisation. And you said something that I, I, my jaw dropped. I was like, what? Okay, during your talk, you said, you know, we can't recapture the contingent historical space in which Dolphy's musical voice signified what it did then. And I was like, 
Yo, it's, you know, so not only is the environment, like you said, of of white supremacy and of anti-blackness that he was experiencing at the time, you know, factor into the way that his use of improvisation was received. It also informs how we receive it now because we are living in a different historical context, right? And so it signifies something completely different um, than what he was experiencing at the time. I was just like, that is so brilliant. Like, yes, (laughs) this is what we're here for. Um, So I really, really appreciated that part of your talk. Yeah, that's so, so... Huh. There's so many things that I could say about this, and I know I've been talking quite a lot, so I'm going to try to keep it short. But keep talking, it's fine. Um, <laughs> the listeners and I are here. I think, I think it, it's another sort of rehabilitative gesture for us to now retroactively say that Eric Dolphy is one of the great practitioners of jazz, right? Sure. Whereas during his time he couldn't make a living playing his music because there was such a violent uh, uh, reaction against not just him, but also, you know, uh, the black avant-garde in general, people like Ornette Coleman, people like Cecil Taylor, um, these, what I characterize as eccentric, uh, following Francesca Royster, but um, other people, uh, you know, folks like George Lewis have talked about this for a long, long time about how, um, the black avant-garde is just so easily dismissed as crazy nonsense, noise, whatever, whatever. Now, so this rehabilitative gesture, what do we get as a society out of all of a sudden valuing Eric Dolphy's contribution to jazz history? This is something that um, Kwame Coleman has written about, who was also at the conference in Cleveland, uh, you know, making me uh, nervous in the room. Um, <laughs> uh, he talks about Ornette Coleman, right? And the way that we can sort of safely now from 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 a safe distance, we can appreciate these artists. And that appreciation becomes evidence of jazz's multiracial, liberal, uh, uh, democratic symbolism, right? It, it plays into this narrative that jazz is the ultimate American music because it's the ultimate democratic music. And it makes us feel good to appreciate how black musicians and white musicians came together and did this thing that could only happen in America, right? It's kind of this Ken Burns line of like romanticizing democracy, romanticizing jazz and so forth and so on. And and yeah, that is that's what we gain selfishly from resuscitating Eric Dolphy's reputation after the fact, now that it's safe to do so because he's dead. And uh, by the way, um, you know, it was uh, white supremacy that killed him. Yeah. Before we wrap up, I have kind of one more larger question about your book and, and what we can expect from it. You know, as you've pointed out, we tend to associate improvisation very heavily with jazz. Do you talk about kind of elements of improvisation in other genres? I'm interested in that because, you know, I've talked on the podcast a bit about how scared of improv I am as a classical musician, as an opera singer who, you know, I I find because I actually used to be a violist. That was my first instrument. I was a violist for like 
12 years and then I switched to voice once I got to college and you know I find that instruments that are a bit less common and are having a lot of new music kind of coming out for them there might be a bit more of an avant-garde or a more um, improvisatory element uh, I experienced that a bit more playing the viola because there's such a lack of repertoire um, you know that there's more of that improvisation element whereas for voice there's such a wide range you know I'm also a soprano there are so many roles like there's so much music art song all those things uh, and you know especially since we're still kind of living in the era of recordings there's so many like you know com there are so many singers of yore that I'm still kind of feeling like I have to emulate you know when I perform right so there not only is there just like there's there's so much standard repertoire for you know instruments like the voice or instruments like the violin and things like that um but I also you know I just I I feel so kind of locked into uh performers of yore and what they have done with their recordings and kind of having to embody their own performance i have to sing it like maria callas that sort of thing and it's weird to be sitting in this you know when you're in a show but people will say oh you know she performed it like it was the first time you know and so it's like i have to sit in between this still making it feel fresh and new and like i'm making it up on the spot and like i'm making all these musical choices like in the mo and that i'm engaged in the moment and that helps keep the that helps keeps the the audience engaged in the moment and yet every move that i make is premeditated but i have to make it look like it's not like do you know what i mean so it's this strange world that i'm living in kind of sitting in limbo and feeling like i don't have access to improvisation at all Mm. Yeah, that's so fascinating and really complicated to pick apart too, because I feel like what you're doing when you're trying to navigate that space is what improvisation looks like in that genre, right? You're, you're sort of virtuosically navigating, how do I make this performance feel fresh for people? And those are the expectations in your genre, just the same way that, you know, a string quartet in that genre, improvisation looks like interpretation. How do we put our fingerprint on this piece, right? That there's always openings, there's always indeterminacies, there's always places where your personality asserts some agency and so forth. Um, but that is definitely, I think, a separate question from, yeah, like, it does seem like certain genres really don't, um, aren't, aren't really sort of self-aware about how improvisation factors in and they don't talk about it very much, if ever. Mm. So that's one problem too, right? Like classical musicians just don't have any exposure to these concepts. I would maintain they're improvising all the time, but it certainly looks way different from how jazz folks are doing it. It certainly looks way different from how dancers and actors are doing it and and the classical musicians are being done a disservice because nobody talks about it in their pedagogy um in in my, in my mm, opinion yeah. right it's happening all the time but nobody has a language for it nobody has a a, a way to approach it i don't know there's there's still this tendency to um distinguish improvisation from repetition um, whereas e 
even or especially in jazz, repetition is absolutely essential for improvisation, right? You have to practice your scales a thousand and five times, not in order to play a scale when you're performing, but in order to have a sort of dexterity or capacity to express oneself, you know, in this moment. And, you know, and people will say, uh, people in the sort of John Cage lineage will say, well, when you start playing the same licks every night, that's not improvisation anymore. That's just habit. But others have argued, and I would agree, that um, habit, tendency, repetition, patterns, personal turns of phrase, these are not antithetical to improvisation. They are evidence of one's personality, one's specific contingent um, Na again, navigation, including your training. So when you're learning to sing like all these people, to me, that's like powerful vocabulary building for that moment when you decide you do want to improvise, you're going to have so many tools in your toolbox, right? That it, that it might just be a matter of becoming a little bit more comfortable with the concept of what I think you're already in some ways doing. And I'm saying you in the kind of deep, depersonalized way here, but that's a whole thing um, that is complicated and tricky to talk about. Ultimately for me, the thing that is, that it sort of gets me up on my soapbox is like, I wish that everybody got a chance to learn about improvisation in different ways according to their discipline uh, uh, rather than it being still very 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 siloed in especially in higher education and associated only with jazz folks and in that case only a very 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 specific and limited and rigid definition of how improvisation is supposed to go um, which is what i was talking about in cleveland actually um the other thing before i shut up is that you asked about the structure of the book and thank you for that question. I did want to um, mention a couple of things. First of all, if anybody's interested in the book, it will be open access at some point, which is super exciting. Um, so you'll be able to just like pull it up wherever you are for free. <laughs> I'm so excited about that. And that's because Michigan, uh, that's because Michigan came through on that, um, which is really fantastic. So the structure of the book, yes, short answer to your question, yes, I talk about improvisation in non-musical spaces. Um, the first half of the book is three musical case studies, and the second half of the book is three everyday life case studies. Um, within those three, there are a bunch of different examples that sort of come in and out. I talk about walking at length. I talk about baking, um, listening, perceiving. Those are the everyday activities that I am investigating primarily in the second half of the book because they have been so thoroughly associated with anti-improvisatory language. Walk I was going to say baking. Yeah. What? <laughs> right? Walking, baking, following a recipe, right? Being very you know, adhering very closely to the score, if you will. These are the mundane and quotidian and banal activities that are so often held up as examples of what improvisation is not. And I'm saying, and I'm trying to poke holes in that and show all the little openings that are in those activities that, you know, we might acknowledge in passing, but what happens if we actually take seriously the idea that walking is 
as improvisatory as playing jazz music is like the exact same thing like let's just entertain that for a minute and see how it shifts our thinking All right, that's going to do it for this episode of the podcast. Thank you so much to Dan for being on the show. It was such a pleasure to talk to him. I'm really excited to check out his book, and I hope you do too. If you have any questions, comments, suggestions for what I should be listening to or reading, you can send me an email at herbmusicacademia at gmail.com, or you can go to my website, herbmusicacademia.com, and fill out the contact form there. I'd love to hear from you. That's all from me. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thank you.